Plinkle's mantra of Kuleana wakes up mana, responsibility wakes up the spirit. You give people Kuleana, you give them a role in your community, the mana will wake up. If you think of a typical leader being at the top of an organizational pyramid, you know, you get to flip that upside down and the leader is actually at the bottom of the pyramid. Invest in somebody and they let me down. Would I ever go back to help that person again? I really feel a deep connection to that culture of aloha. My great-grandfather, he leaves Hiroshima, Japan. It was way more brutal than he was expecting. He's homeless. He's an immigrant. He was taken in by a Hawaiian family, and he lived with them for 10 years. Where else in the world would that happen besides Hawaii? Part of the curse or the deficit of modern society is... And I guess my takeaway was that speaks to what is special about Hawaii. Greater Good Radio, Connect, Learn, Heal, and Grow is brought to you by Brain Gain Hawaii, a boutique executive recruiting, career development, and coaching firm. Learn more at BrainGainHI.com. Today's guest is James Koshiba, and James currently is the homeless coordinator for the state of Hawaii. Governor Josh Green recruited him into the spot recently. I have to disclose, I've known James since I was maybe five or six years old. We went to school together, but kind of went this way because James is like super smart and he went to Brown and Harvard. Evan became and a I, success. I never, I never did that. <laughs> but he's done so many things. James, I don't know if you know this, but you are kind of the reason why I started with my wife this program. I didn't no. even know what a social entrepreneur was, where you have a double bottom line. Mm. You have a, a profit mission and a social mission could possibly be a triple bottom line for a, mm. a environmental mission as well. But I've just always followed your career and I'm super happy that we're able to do this today because I've always wanted to kind of get into the brain and heart of James Koshiba, but never really had the right timing. So thanks for coming today. Well, thanks for having me. And I can take no credit for Greater Good Radio. I remember when you first you know, came up with a concept and you were jamming on it. I mean, it was awesome. And that was just at a time when this whole idea of social entrepreneurship was starting to become a thing, right? And you were already jamming on the business side of things and then getting into the social impact side of things. I kind of feel like that's easier. You know, yeah. if you go the business side first and then you add the social, it's way easier than going oh, social yeah. and then trying to add the business. Yep. So, you know, I was trying to do the intro. I was like writing it down. I even busted out like chat GPT to try to help me and all that. <laughs> and I was really like, bro, this is so much. It's so much yeah. on there. Like, can you just maybe share like, kind of that progression, like what brought you to each point in the transition or like Yeah, I mean, it's it's impossible to sum up. My parents ask me all the time, Should I tell me again exactly what it is that you do so I can explain to uncle and auntie? Mm-hmm. You know, my dad actually had me write it down on the back of a business card for him one time. Took up the whole back of the business card. Wait, so would he take the business card and give the business card or he was trying to read he it? He would read it. He would like read the back of it. Wow. But I guess the way to sum it up, succinctly is, you know, I spent my entire career kind of working in the nonprofit and community space and started out thinking I was going to be a teacher or a counselor. Like that was my undergrad major was in education. And I wanted to work with kids, with young people. I thought that was a way to change the world. After I went to school on the continent, moved back home, started out in a youth organization, and I was barely an adult myself, not cut out for it at all. Quickly burned out, kind of went back to the drawing board. And I thought, well, maybe I can attack this from another angle, learn about public policy, you know? So I went back to school for public policy and fell in love with working with 
community-based organizations, nonprofits. I was in school in Boston at the time, and there were some really radical organizations doing that social entrepreneurship work, even before it was called that, probably in inner cities. So in inner, inner city Boston, other inner cities across the Northeast, and fell in love with both how creative and innovative they were and how connected they were to the community. So the nonprofit I went to work for right out of grad school had a loan fund that financed affordable housing and a venture fund that financed high-growth inner-city small businesses. And it was all owned by the nonprofit. And they're having a lot of success at you know building housing for people in the inner city and creating jobs in the inner city. And so after a year and a half of that, I was like, oh, I'm going to move home and do the same kind of stuff at home. My thought was always to come back home. And there was nothing like that in Hawaii when I came home, number one. And number two is I realized that I actually didn't know that much about Hawaii, even though I was born and raised here. You know, I wasn't connected to the community. And so as I got more and more connected with the community here, I realized, oh, everything I learned on the continent I had to unlearn, actually, because, you know, community development on the continent was you create a job or create a unit of housing, and that's a success, hands down. But in Hawaii, it's not a success if you've despoiled the environment, if you've desecrated something that's culturally important, if you've divided a community over a project. And so the equation is way more complicated here. And I guess my takeaway was that kind of speaks to what is special about Hawaii. You know, we have this definition of the good life that's about more than having just a roof over your head or a job to pay the bills, you know. We care about all of that. We care about having access to the environment. We want to be able to go surf or hike and, you know, practice our culture and all those things we value equally. And it means we have a richer definition of what it means to to be living the good life. So anyway, that started me on a journey to working in and, and creating nonprofits and other organizations. But it was always rooted in that, that kind of recognition of, oh, this is kind of what makes Hawaii different and special. Yeah. So then how did it end up with Envision and then Kanu and mm. then Three Point mm. and then, you know, the other 35 things you get going. Yeah. So I'm kind of on a seven year cycle. Like I definitely, I'm not a serial entrepreneur like you or like, I know you had all on the gone on, you know, as a past guest. But you kind of are. Kind of, but I'm on a slower roll really. Like I get Depends into, you measure. I get into the mode of kind of starting something up every five or seven years. I like the startup phase. I don't like the growth and maintenance phase. And then I typically step out and then I'll go back to consulting or something for another five years and then I'll get the itch to start up something new. So I only know that about myself now looking back, but I started working with different nonprofits here in Hawaii. And then pretty soon after that, started a consulting practice because I was getting asked by different nonprofits to help with business planning, especially strategic planning. And a good friend of mine, Andrew Oki, and I started Three Point Consulting. But a few years into consulting, I started to get the itch to, well, you know, maybe start something up. And the first kind of go at that was Envision Hawaii. And that was really just a network of young-ish public servants and social entrepreneurs. We we're all in our 20s and 30s and trying to build that sense of, okay, there's a community here. There's some sense of movement and direction here. And, you know, young professionals got something to contribute to that. So I think Envision is still around. Is it? Can I, I ask so. about that a little bit? Yeah. Because when Envision Hawaii was started, mm -hmm. there was such a energetic push 
And I don't know if it's so much of an energetic push, but it was like a wave that was moving, mm. right? So if you mm-hmm. just join it, you move with it. Yeah, It's like it, the energy around it, along with kind of the older established people in the community mm-hmm. were getting involved too. I have not seen anything like that since. I haven't either. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I think Envision is still around. It probably plays a different role now than it did then. But you're right. There was a feeling it's of- It's going to be nothing like that. Yeah there, yeah, there was a feeling of movement. There was a feeling of like a generational kind of push there. And like you said, support from older generations and the wider community. So too. in that then, can you maybe reflect on it? What mm. made that work? Like if somebody wanted to do that now, what are the ingredients they would absolutely have to have in order to do it? That's a really good question. I'm not sure how much of it was circumstance. There was a bunch of people. I'm not sure exactly why the notion caught on then, but I can tell you that what made it work well was that it was rooted, and I wouldn't have described it this way at the time, but it really was rooted in relationships, you know? and the building of a circle of relationships. And it started as a small group of friends, and really two groups of friends kind of got together, and it was maybe seven or ten of us, and just started talking about how do we support each other, and then how do we support other people that have this community-minded bent, right? And whether they're in business or in nonprofit or in government, if you have a heart for community and you're trying to make a positive community impact in some way, those are people we want to connect with and support, like build up capacity and voices. And I think there was a genuine passion for kind of supporting each other and finding people like that. And it could be that that's more the norm now. It could be that, you know, being kind of double bottom line or triple bottom line minded just in your own life and practice mm-hmm. has become more normalized now. So there maybe there isn't as much of a need for that. But at the time it felt like, oh, we needed to go hunt for these people and who you up, you know? Bro, I don't think it's more normal now. Mm. I'm not seeing that. Mm. Like, leadership is leadership. And the interesting thing about that group was that all the leadership in there are in influential positions mm. now. Mm. I did notice, because I remember in your speech, you did at that all KCC conference. one, mm-hmm. right? There was like hundreds of people there. And you talked about the tipping point, And that's when I actually learned about Malcolm Gladwell. Mm-hmm. So you taught me a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It's good, right? Because I don't need to be a good student. I just sit by you and then, <laughs> oh, that's what he's doing in copy. <laughs> that's the easy way to do it. But you almost need in there a charismatic leader. I don't know how the drive comes together without that. I mean, there's people in there that are definitely capable. But I think without you in there, I don't know how that's possible. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not, but, I, but I agree with you that charismatic leadership helps. And I wouldn't say just charismatic leadership, but you know, I think one thing I had in common with everybody in that circle was we did believe in building movement and building community, you know. And that's a different kind of leadership than I'm gonna have the best idea and I'm going to marshal resources and people to go make this happen. You know, so are you talking about that the group think was actually not group think, but it's group heart? That's a good way to describe it. And I think it was really a, a commitment or a belief that we were about building a movement. It wasn't about any one person and it wasn't about one leader kind of directing everybody else. And this has been kind of a theme because I genuinely believe in the power of that. And I feel like that is not as common a style of leadership as maybe we're used to. It's not common at all. Yeah, but that kind of approach to building movement and building community, I think 
is powerful, was powerful in that case of Envision Hawaii, and then later with with Kanu, that was the kind of core philosophy too, right? So you think it can be replicated? You think you could put it into a recipe and replicate it? I think so. I mean, you talk about that speech, right? Tipping Point and Malcolm Gladwell. At that point early in my career, I was trying to be a really good student of social movements of the past, whether it was a civil rights movement or the environmental movement or even you know, Gandhi and nonviolent resistance. But all these tidbits and tools and historical examples of how movement had been built, I learned a ton from that. And I feel like our collective efforts in Envision Hawaii and Kanu Hawaii later benefited from that. And we were working hard to try to make it replicable, like at different times, more under Kanu than Envision. We had a training program, kind of an academy that was about trying to build up that kind, that style of leadership. Okay. So if you had to create that now, Mm. what would you say? This is the non-negotiables. One, two, three, four. In priority. It's been so long since I thought about this. If you had to do it now. Yeah. But you couldn't do it. You were only the symphony conductor Mm -hmm. or you're only the coach. Mm -hmm. You're not the player. Yeah. So a couple of things I think are important. One is this idea of servant leadership or humility that's built into leadership is really critical, I think, because those are the kind of leaders that are going to lift other people up. They're going to hui people together. They're not going to make it about them and their power, you know, or their influence. And so I don't think you can have the building of movements without leaders like that. So servant leader, is that your definition, what you just said? Or how would you define that on the back of that business card? Yeah, I would describe it as if you think of a typical leader being at the top of an organizational pyramid, you know, you get to flip that upside down and the leader is actually at the bottom of the pyramid and building and supporting everybody else in the triangle above them. And again, like just someone that's not inclined to make it about themselves, you know, and those aren't the kind of people that stand out all the time. So we got to be consciously looking for them, actually, you know. And I'm lucky, like in my recent work, I've found plenty of people like that, mostly people that live on the street, actually. But I think that's an important ingredient. I do think, you know, you describe it as charismatic leadership. I would describe it as someone that can communicate in terms of story is really important because it is through story that we feel a gut connection to values. And I think that the building of movements is more spiritual than technical, okay. actually. And so story is the language of spirituality, you know, and I'm not talking religion. I'm talking about like a deep resonance with your core values. And it's almost like a remembering of, oh yeah, this, this is really what matters. And when someone can tell a good story that illustrates the power of values in action, it inspires other people to, you know, recall and move the same way. Then what would be your most treasured or impactful stories that you can share Mm. to have that type of connection? Yeah. So one that I share in my current work, and actually this is a story that I kind of uncovered in my work with Kanu Hawaii. So, I mean, you know, Kanu was all about building social movement around sustainability. We'd have these campaigns a couple years into the work with Kanu, we had a few thousand members and everybody joined Kanu by making a personal commitment to a change in their own life that would model a more sustainable future. So we had kind of built it into the model of how we organize and how people joined that you would have to start from a humble place. Like you'd have to start by trying to change yourself. So you would experience how hard it was to change any behavior 
before you went out and advocated for anybody else to change. So a couple years in, we had a few thousand folks and we started to do these campaigns about once a quarter. We had like an eat local challenge where we challenged all our members to eat only locally grown food for an entire month, which was not easy at the time because there weren't as many locally sourced restaurants or products as there are today. But that turned out to be meaningful because with a few thousand members and enough publicity around it, then restaurants and markets started to come on board and our consumer power had an impact, right? So eat local challenge. We had an energy challenge during the summer, having people cut their electric bills. And we also started a Live Aloha campaign. And we were getting ready for that campaign. It was called Live Aloha in Your Neighborhood. And the call to action was, if you didn't know your neighbors, you had to go three doors down in each direction from your home, get to know them. And at the time, it was around the time of the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. So we asked people to gather folks up and do some disaster preparation. But I was looking for my own inspiration to try to connect it to Aloha. And my grandmother, before she passed, had shared a bunch of stories with me about our family. And sometimes she would talk and I would write, other times she would write it down, but I had kind of compiled them into this booklet and I hadn't looked at it for a while actually. But as we're getting ready for this campaign, I went back and looked at those stories and I came across what she had told me about her father, my great-grandfather who it turns out is the first person on either side of my family to come to Hawaii. And this story I found to be remarkable. So the story is he leaves Hiroshima, Japan at around 14 or 15 years old. This is 1890. He leaves the entire family behind. He comes by himself to work on the plantation in Maui. So he gets off the boat in Kahului and he starts working the plantation and he lasts only about three days on the plantation because it was way more brutal than he was expecting. It was not as it was advertised in Japan, right? So he runs away. And somehow he makes his way from Kahului to Hana. And in 1890, obviously, it was by horse or by foot, right? And he lives in Hana for 10 years. And my grandma describes it. The whole family used to talk about it as all the time when dad lived with the Hawaiians. Because he was taken in by a Hawaiian family and he lived with them for 10 years. He learned how to speak Hawaiian. He learned how to dance hula. He learned how to emu a pig. Ten years later, at the age of 25, he moves back to Kahului and he meets my great-grandma who herself is just coming off the boat, also from Japan. And that's how our family starts in Hawaii. But I reflected on that and I thought, that is incredible because here he is. He checks all the boxes for being the least desirable demographic in society. He's homeless, he's an immigrant, he's a teenager, he's a boy, doesn't speak the language, doesn't know the culture. He gets off the boat and he's taken in, he's adopted by a family and lives with them for 10 years in 1890, right? I said, where else in the world would that happen besides Hawaii? And I did some homework about what was happening in the world at that time. On the continent, Around that time, Congress was reauthorizing the Chinese Exclusion Act, right, to keep Asians out. South Africa was setting up the precursors of apartheid, Kefir districts in South Africa. Anti-Semitism was becoming a thing in Europe, right? If that kid had gotten off the boat anywhere else in the world in 1890, he probably wouldn't have made it, you know? 
But in Hawaii, there was that spirit of no matter how foreign, no matter how alien, no matter how unknown you are to me, there's still a connection. I take you in and make you part of my family, you know? And that spirit still exists today. Anyway, to go back to your question, that's an example to me of a really powerful story that motivates me. It motivated my work in Kanu. It's part of the reason why I started spending time on the street after I left Kanu, really spending time in homeless encampments and getting to know folks on the street because it wasn't so much that I cared about homelessness or people experiencing homelessness, I do, but I really feel a deep connection to that culture of aloha and how special it is in Hawaii, how important it is. It has an important place in the world. And I was looking for a way to help that along, to try to keep that alive, you know. Mm -hmm. So do you feel another social movement in this endeavor? I don't know. I think that it's so interesting because it was actually easier to build movement around sustainability than it is to build movement around caring for people, you know. What do you think? I think it's a natural human tendency. You know, I mean, I think that's a deep question. I mean, it is easier to care for things that don't betray you, right? So, I mean, I love the environment. We love the environment. I have a relationship with the environment and it's never going to turn on me. Unless you have, you know, you know, the storms or whatever else. Right, 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 right. But I mean, if my favorite place to go is hiking in Nu'uanu, you know, my relationship with that place is not so much a two-way street, right? Mm -hmm. Our relationships with people are way more complicated. And we get into questions of, well, who's deserving? Who's undeserving? If I invest in somebody and they let me down or worse, they betray me, take advantage of me, would I ever go back to help that person again? You know, I think there's natural kind of human reasons why it's harder to build that kind of resilient heart for people versus for a place or for even for animals, right? So that's part of it. And part of it is we're out of practice, you know? I mean, I think part of the curse or the deficit of modern society is it has separated us, you know? Whereas before, and this is another big takeaway and lesson I've learned from spending time with folks on the street, we would depend for surviving and thriving on each other, right? And we depend on our community really. Now the model is totally different. Now the pathway to surviving and thriving is you got to make enough money to buy the things you need or to be able to depend on that third party institutional solution to whatever problem you're encountering, right? We're not as dependent on each other and we don't have those kind of connections anymore. And so that context, I think to me, makes it harder actually to build movement for empathy and connection because it runs against the grain of the system we're operating in. I have some thoughts on that. Can I share my thoughts on that? Yeah, please. So when we look at homelessness, because I mean, even for me, I noticed that the moment that I'm driving down and I'll see somebody begging or so mm -hmm. on, my initial reaction internally is to kind of turn away mm -hmm. and not, not make eye contact. I don't want to feel this or so on. But in the work that I've done, I've noticed that that's just a projection of my own internal parts telling me that this is showing me externally in more or less a mirror of the parts of me that I don't want to see. Mm. So then it brings up shame. Mm. And shame is, you know, the most painful thing there is, right? Mm -hmm. Shame. I am not good enough. Yeah. I am unworthy. And somebody is 
witnessing the bad parts of me, mm-hmm. right? So when that kind of stuff goes on, it's very hard to have that compassionate view unless you can really tune in. And it's really mm-hmm. the tuning in, right? Like you said first, to tune in mm-hmm. and be able to witness that properly. So that makes it a, a bit tough. But yeah. then if you look at like the culture, is so different now. If you go back to indigenous culture, indigenous culture is all about the tribe. It's all about the village. There's certain cultures where the baby doesn't touch the ground mm. for two years, mm-hmm. three years. It goes from auntie to uncle to auntie to mother to child. You know what I mean? The village cares mm-hmm. for each other. And when you get hurt, you typically get hurt in a group. Mm-hmm. When you heal, you heal in a group. Right. But now when everything becomes individualistic and you break the connection, mm-hmm. right? So if you're mm-hmm. talking about connection, you have a disconnection. Mm-hmm. And then everybody is forced to resolve that connection themselves. Yep. Mm-hmm. Nice stuff. Yeah. Because that is very hard. And yeah. that was exacerbated in this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Because when you physically separate people from their support to be able to co-regulate your nervous system... And to have the supports in place, somebody who was kind of unstable before now becomes really oh, yeah. unstable. Yeah, and we could see it happening right around us. It uh, becomes yep. really unstable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have not had really strong support as a child mm-hmm. in that area. So they have no frame of reference. Right. So how the heck is going to happen yep. now? Plus, then you add in that everything's expensive yep. over here, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, if you had inexpensive homes, then it would... Almost yep. wouldn't be as big of an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, stuff's expensive. So, I don't know. I'm talking kind of a lot. But in research to do this, because I was trying to research it. So, I read like Civil Beat article mm. and then I read the comments yeah. and so on, right? And I think by now you already know the people coming at you and, mm-hmm. and stuff, right? But when I read that, I was like, there was one point in there where it was talking about comp. And I said, this comp is so freaking low compared to what you could get on the actual market, because mm. I'm a recruiter. You know, I, I can recruit. I know I could place you a double. Mm. You know what I mean? So to me, it's like the job that you've got is so hard. But I kind of think, you know, it's like I don't know anybody else I think would be a better person in that job because you're looking at it holistically, mm. right? This is not just a logistic situation. I'm going to put you in a shelter or so on. It's a holistic piece of body, mind, and spirit where there's a lot of things at play. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there's anyone that really comes together with so many like seemingly unconnected experiences at a high levels Mm -hmm. like yourself. So that was my long monologue. I appreciate that. And yeah, I don't know if I'm the best person for the job, but the, the thing that convinced me to take it was that, you know, for the last eight years now, right up until I took this job, I had spent from 2015 until I started in this position, building relationships with and learning from people on the street. And I got some powerful life lessons for myself and my community out of those experiences and those relationships. And along with a lot of insight that I never would have gotten about how our systems work and don't work, you know, and what solutions might work that haven't been tried yet. But I got that all from people who were actually experiencing homelessness and who had worked out solutions on their own or who knew where the pukas were in the system. And 
that holistic view you're talking about really comes out of that too, because I saw examples of people who were managing to survive and even thrive in some cases or on some measures by building community with each other, you know? And that to me was powerful beyond homelessness and trying to solve homelessness. Like that was powerful. In fact, like I said, I, I tried to take some of those lessons and apply them in my life and my community in the apartment building that I live in, you know? So if you could only take one lesson mm. from that experience and keep it with you, what would it be? Like, how did it come about and how to use it? I might have to give one and a half or two. Okay. I mean, but, if you want to go but, three, I was trying to narrow it down, <laughs> but if you got to go three or four, whatever, you know? Yeah. The first and most important one is how critical community is. And we were just talking about this, right? the, the connection and depending on each other, not being entirely dependent on an individualistic or individualized way of trying to survive and thrive or heal. I'll just give you some examples because I'm not sure I can describe it in total. But the main model for this that I came into contact with is Puhono Hawaii. And, you know, the village of 250 people who live houseless at the Waianae Boat Harbor, led by Twinkle Borge. I met her in 2015 and started spending time out at the Boat Harbor and just helping out wherever I could. What really cemented my relationship with Twinkle and the village was in 2018, the state was going to evict them. And at that point, myself and other kind of housed allies, along with leaders of the village, kind of banded together to try to prevent the eviction from happening. And that brought us really, really close. But the reason why I felt it was so important to defend the village and to prevent the eviction was I had seen really incredible examples of community caring for each other. So I'll give you a couple. One is I'd been going out there for a year or two by this time. And so I was very familiar with the village and I was walking around the footpaths with Twinkle and the village is divided into sections of about 25 residents each. And each section has a bulletin board and a little gathering space. And I was walking past the bulletin boards in the sections and I noticed that there were these posters up with American Sign Language alphabet. Yeah. And so I asked Twinkle, I said, didn't notice these before. How come you guys put these up? And she said, oh, a family moved in and they have a deaf son. And so we all got to know at least basic, you know, signing because we got to be able to communicate with him and tell him like if he's lost or he's wandering out to the parking lot, you know, going the wrong direction, we got to be able to tell him. And I thought, what other neighborhood would that happen in where a family moves in with a deaf child and the neighborhood takes it upon themselves to try to learn some sign language, you know? But that, that's one example. And then, you know, I can give you dozens of examples like that of where the ethic of that village is we take care of each other. We so take what care about of the, the next most impactful ones? The ones that will connect us with, I notice you always kind of go here, either you know mm-hmm. how or mm-hmm. your heart. Mm-hmm. Wh- which ones? So the first one is that, that community, right? And the other is Twinkle's mantra of Kuliana wakes up mana. Responsibility wakes up the spirit. And I saw that happen too. Um, during that eviction, when that eviction was imminent, one of the things the village decided to do was to have an open house because there was all kind of negative media coverage of the village and it was entirely misleading or outright false. Okay, so Twinkle was like, we got people come and see what we're about, see how we live. And she was organizing 
they were going to have this open house and we weren't sure how many people were going to show up, but she said, we need tour guides to take groups of like 10 people through the village because the village covers a pretty big area. And she had assigned this guy, Lenny, to be a tour guide. And I had never seen Lenny come out of his tent even up to that point. And I understood that, you know, maybe he had some mental health issues he was struggling with. And I was like, you sure or what, you know? And Twinkle was like, nah, he can, you know? And he led tours of the village that day. And 800 people showed up. So, you know, the whole day, he and others are walking people through the village, kind of pointing out, you know, how the village operated. And after that day, every time I went back to the village, he was outside his tent. He was the village handyman. He was a village gardener. You know, he was talking story with folks. But again, like one example of dozens that I could share of, as Twinkle says, you give people kuleana, you give them a role in your community, something that they know is meaningful to the community, and the mana will wake up. You know, and I've seen that be part of people's healing and growth. And it's something that our systems are not good at doing, especially our systems of helping, right? Those two things, actually, building community, having people depend on each other and support each other, and creating roles that are really meaningful, you know, for people to put their gifts to use for the benefit of a community and people they care about. Our systems are not good at doing that. Even the systems we have for helping people out of homelessness are not good at doing that, right? And so those are powerful lessons that, I, again, I, you know, I, I try to take into my own neighborhood and I can share an example of that. But it really opened my eyes. How it was a different way of surviving and thriving. Okay. Let, me, let me do this. Let me make a comment yeah. that I have on that. And mm-hmm. then if you can share the story in your yeah. apartment, okay? So what, what I heard on that was that the community piece, first off, right? And the second one was uh, Kuliana empowers the mana, right? Mm-hmm. So when I listen to that, I hear about this guy, Lenny, mm. who, you know, my head tells me that most likely has been pretty used to people witnessing the parts of him that would be considered bad, mm-hmm. right? Which is shame right there, right? Somebody witnessing your bad parts. Mm. Whereas when he was put to use... They witness his good parts, mm-hmm. right? Because we all want to be seen. Yep. We all want to be heard, validated, empathized mm-hmm. with, and so on. But we don't like the what would be considered bad right. to be seen. Mm-hmm. That's painful. Mm-hmm. So is that what it is? Having community put together where your good parts can be witnessed. You can feel a sense of importance and self-worth. Mm-hmm. And then that leads into moving forward. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think that's... Yeah. That's exactly right, you know. But I think what your insight points to is that it's really difficult to actually heal and grow as a person without being part of a community, without having people witness, yeah. you know, your gift in action. Yep. So to do it in isolation or to do it in a clinical I, setting, you know. Well, clinical, depending on who's in yeah. there. That's why I said before, right? You get hurting groups, you heal in groups. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, that is kind of everything. I think the yeah. community, the connection, mm-hmm. that's the kind of the main mm-hmm. pieces. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned I, you know, tried to apply some of those lessons in my apartment building. And the first time I thought of it was this was, I forget what year this was, when Hurricane Lane was going to come through. It was forecast to be on a path right through Oahu, right? And I had moved into this apartment building about a year before that, and I had joined the board of the association. And it's a small walk-up. It's like 20 units. I'd been living there about a year with my Hanai son, but I didn't really know anybody in the building except one other family because he was friends with their son. So when Hurricane Lane was in the news, people in the building started getting really anxious. And one day I go out to the trash area, which is just like an outdoor area with trash cans and lids. And someone has like emptied out their whole apartment and put it in the trash area, I guess because they thought we might have to evacuate or something. And I was pissed. I was like, I can't even, you can't even get into the trash area. Not to mention if a hurricane does come through here, this is all going to be projectiles, right? So I started messaging the other members of the board, the four other members of the board. I took pictures of it. I was like, oh, this is outrageous. You know, I got everybody all worked up. They were like, yeah, you know, let's call the property manager. We'll get them to put up a sign, you know, signs over there. We'll get them to send out notices to people. And we'll have them send a special notice to the guy that we know probably did this, you know. And at first, I was all about it. I was like, you know, yeah, let's do it. And then I thought about Twinkle and the village, and I was like, this would be so much better if we could just go deal with this as a community without having to depend on the property manager, you know. And I was like, but I don't know anybody in the building. So I made my Hanai son go with me. I bought a bunch of chocolate chip cookies from Safeway, put them in Ziploc bags. We went door to door and just had like a little five-minute conversation with folks. We gave them cookies introduced ourselves, talk story, and at the end said, oh, by the way, we got to keep that trash area clear because even if a hurricane wasn't coming, we get kupuna in the building. They kind of get into the trash area. You know, we got to keep it tidy. And I swear, after that conversation for like the next year and a half or longer, that trash area was pristine, you know? And that's when it kind of dawned on me how dependent we all are and how dependent I was on the institutional response or the moneyed response, right? And I would have paid the property manager extra for those signs and for those notices and to manage the association meeting that would have happened afterwards or people would have come, you know, pissed off probably. <laughs> but this this was a totally different way and how out of practice I was and how out of practice we are at getting together and trying to solve things as a community, you know? But that's one example of me trying to apply lessons from a place like Puhonua. And it doesn't have to be an either or, right? There's going to be situations where we need institutional help or where markets are going to solve our problems, right? But that doesn't mean we can give up and let atrophy the muscle of being able to solve things as a community. But as we were talking about earlier, because those are the dominant modes of operating, that muscle does get atrophied. We do lose it. You know, we lose our ability. It was so uncomfortable to go and just talk to my neighbors, you know. And to me, that's the part we got to be intentional about keeping up. Like we got to keep exercising that muscle. And folks on the street know how to do it well because they got no money to depend on and they've been let down by institutions. And so community is their safety net, you know. You know, on that piece, it's kind of interesting because it reminds me of, you know, our late friend Pono Shim. Mm. And Pono's 
kind of mantra was connection versus correction. Right. Right. Connection versus correction. So could have taken the role, like you said, of correction, put up signs, make penalties, find somebody, go point finger, mm-hmm. create some divisiveness, and you move toward disconnection, mm-hmm. right? And force somebody into it. Mm-hmm. That's possible, right? Or moving toward the connection side where people feel like doing it on their own. Mm-hmm. The hard thing with that is, I don't know if you notice this, but this ties back to your initial kind of thought process on it got to start with you first. Mm. Because that type of correction happens internally first, right? So it's like that's how we want to push away things underneath in us and get rid of it and shut it down and penalize it and exile it out because we don't see that stuff in us. Mm -hmm. But when we are able to compassionately witness those parts of us and they realize, hey, you're getting it, they will lower their own intensity on the same way. And that absolutely happens externally as well. I think that's a powerful insight, and I think it's true. I forget the the phrase you used earlier, but like turning turning inward or turning tune the, in, turn tune, toward. That's the kind toward. of mantra my daughter and I are using for our other kind of mm. endeavor we've got going, which is a parent child relationship mm. kind of endeavor, and it's all about tuning in, turning toward. Because what initially is the reaction is turn away, tune out, turn mm-hmm. away. Right? Yep, yep. Something's painful. I'm tune them out. Yep. Don't turn away. Yeah. None of that. And that happens internally too, right? Mm-hmm. Feel some emotion that is not pleasant. I like tune it out, turn away. So mm-hmm. all of those, what you call addictions, are numbing and distracting agents yep. for that yep. very purpose. Mm-hmm. But the way through healing is the only way out is through. Yeah. So it's really about tuning in. Mm-hmm. So I got a story on this one. Actually. Yeah, please. So in this very room, mm-hmm. which is my office, right? You can see like it, this used to be where I would set up. And then over there is where my daughter was setting up. She was in kindergarten and they had just done this homeschooling, you know, that virtual school stuff, mm-hmm. right? But I figured, you know what, I'm paying tuition, so I, I'm not going to help her. So I just <laughs> left her over there and I do my own thing, right? I do my Zoom meetings yep. and whatever else. But, you know, give her about two or three minutes. She's walking around, she's in the yard eating one snack, laying on the <laughs> ground, whatever, you know, and she wants my attention, right? So what would happen is if this is the screen, it would be like this, it would be like, She'll be coming over here, daddy, 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 hey, who's that, who's that? And be like, <laughs> mute, be like, or put my finger, beat it, <laughs> beat it, you know, like, like, hi, you know, I'm looking at you like, <laughs> Jay, you have to put me, yeah. I, I tell you, beat it, you know, so I can't my mouth, right? Like, leave, go, go away, I can get you, I'll talk to you later. But guess what happens, right? She's unseen, unheard. Mm-hmm. It, she gets more loud. So she's coming, bouncing around, bouncing around. And until so I finally realized, you know what, what needs to happen is I need to address this. So I would say, you know what, I'm sorry. I, let me just take a moment. My daughter needs me. And I put that on mute and I would turn to her directly, right? And I would say, I would say, you know, honey, what, what is it? What is it that you need? And I sit there and whatever she needs, she can tell me, daddy, my, tell me whatever. And then once she feels like I actually got it and I heard her, then I couldn't even keep her there. I was like, come on, give me a hug, honey. No, no, oh, can I even? She's she's gone. So she lowers her intensity mm-hmm. on her own yep. because she got what she needed. Mm-hmm. That's exactly how our internal system works. Yeah. And that's how the external system works. But it has to go inside first and then out. Yep. So yep. that's what I meant by the tune in, turn toward. Now, I, like I said, I think it's a powerful insight because... And I see this in trying to connect with people on the street too, right? Like when I first went out 
and started spending time in the Kakakwa encampment, which is the first place I went to, you know, I knew nothing. I had defenses up, I had my guard up. And people can sense when you're not tuned in and turned toward, Mm -hmm. right? And their energy matches yours, actually. And so, yeah, I mean, that rings so true. And yeah, just being mindful about that practice of like, okay, let's take a minute to tune in, turn toward, you know, look inside first before trying to interact. Mm -hmm. I think that sets it up to be more about connection than correction. Can I add something to that? To that? So what you noticed is when you were going onto the street and joining the homeless, you were, you know, justifiably kind of mm-hmm. scared. Like, so when you have fear, you got to put up protection. Mm-hmm. And then that's what is being communicated. And then the other side is feeling the same thing. Right. Go, right? Have you ever heard of a category called a highly sensitive person? Mm-mm. So a highly sensitive person is like a category of person that is, is I think it's, they said there's something maybe like, there's actually what if you go on the website you can see it's like maybe like twenty something percent of people are considered highly sensitive. Mm. So the same way that somebody could be highly sensitive in their hearing, so they can hear music and tones and so on, or even autistic mm. people, right? That's mm-hmm. why they wear the head. It's, it's too right, um, right. It's overwhelming. That's how it is for feelings mm. for highly sensitive people. Mm. And what happens then is it's just the volume is really mm. loud, mm-hmm. so you feel stuff. But here's the thing: if you don't know you're actually feeling it. From somebody else, you think it's you. Uh, so, like, I went to a concert, and I don't know, normally go to concerts, and it was enclosed. It was super loud. And what I noticed was, oh, my God, my chest is doing this. Uh, like, boom, boom, boom. And then I realized, oh, the drum, it's at the same, the, boom, boom, the drum was so loud. The drum was beating, and my chest was actually pounding wow. down. But if I did not put that together, like consciously put it together, like, oh, drum's going in this set. I would think I'm having a heart attack. I need right. to go to the hospital. Right. I need to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So that's what happens when we unconsciously move throughout is that if you're yeah. highly sensitive, you'll pick up other people's energy mm-hmm. and feel like it's yours yeah. and then create a story around that and then that will create a reaction right. that's actually right. incorrect. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, you're dealing with a lot of different types of energy in groups mm-hmm. and so on. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like you could be in this category potentially. Mm-hmm. So you might want to look at that as yeah. a help so that you can discern like, okay, you know what? I'm feeling this, but this is not actually me. That That's helpful. What it also makes me think of is, you know, you mentioned like the comments section on any story about homelessness and there's so much frustration and anger and at times outright hate towards this issue and these people that you talk about the energy that's been set up around this, you know, solving this problem and the energy is not conducive to it, you know. Ultimately, the solution to this problem is having space in our community mm-hmm. for those folks who are unhoused right now to come home and be housed and healed and to do it in community as part of a community, right? But that energy that we've got going right now. And it's not everywhere. It's not everybody. Right, right. right. That energy itself is undermining. And I wonder how much that stuff is real. Because I went through it this morning and I looked through it and so on. Mm. And I can control people too. Mm. I could do it in a very, very effective way if I really wanted to. You know what I mean? Like it, but I don't know how many of them are real. Yeah. Yeah. Or just put into there to create stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And then the other piece of that is that if it is kind of real, 
all it's showing is what that person's inner reality looks like. Right. Right. That's it. I can tell you if they leave a decent length comment, I can show you where their pain lies. Yeah. Yeah. And they can project it out. Yeah. I do the same thing. Yeah. You know, so And then it gets back to your earlier question of how do we build movement to call people, you know, away from that and back to connection, right? To start. And yeah, I think it is. And connection. I think but I think it's actually, you know, I can share certain kinds of stories. But to have people who are living through being homeless or who have lived through it recently be the ones sharing their story in that space, that's when I've seen people's energy level shift. The defenses and the hostility get dialed down and there's enough openness for a connection to be made, which is why going back to why I took the job, I thought if I could create opportunities for that, if I could create opportunities for Twinkle and folks from Puhonua Wainai or the leaders of the encampment that I got to know really well in Kakaako or the folks at Waimanalo Beach Park to be part of these conversations, be sharing their story, that would be the key to kind of, you know, um, at least a first step toward building movement because it does dial things down and create enough of an opening for someone to connect. I got something for you then. Mm. You may have already read it because, you know, you well read. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the book, My Grandmother's Hands? No. It's by a man named Resma Menachem. Mm. It's very popular amongst the African-American community because it talks about how generational trauma lives in your body and mm. is passed down generationally. Mm. And he's got a great quote in there that is absolutely relevant to here mm. in Hawaii that I believe. And the quote is something along the lines of, trauma decontextualized in a people looks like culture. Mm. Trauma decontextualized in a family looks like family traits. Mm. And trauma decontextualized in a person looks like a personality. I added my own, which is trauma mm. decontextualized in a company looks like company culture. Mm. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. So decontextualized means like you don't know like what happened right. or anything around right. that, right? Mm. And I don't know if this is the example that they use, but someone else had used this. And they said, you know, people think of soul food as, okay, this is like their food that they enjoy and so on. But, you know, the collard greens and things like that what was shared with me was those were scraps sent to slaves. Mm -hmm. So parts of the pig, the ears and whatever else, we don't want it. Mm -hmm. So they have to create it into something that they eat and then that ends up being a part of mm -hmm. their culture. Mm -hmm. And they hold that and pass it generationally down, right? Yeah. So once you get context around that, everything makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like the guy Lenny. Mm -hmm. If you had context about where he came from and what was it, it would make complete sense of why buggers in mm -hmm. that tent. Mm -hmm. But Without that, what will happen is our own systems will just create a story around it, whether it's true or not, yeah. and then react mm -hmm. accordingly, according to that person. So, yeah, I, I like that quote. Yeah. I think you'd like that book. I'll check it out for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know that we're a little bit shorter on time for mm. this because you got to get back and do like important stuff. So I have some questions. Yeah, sure. I don't wrote them down, so I need some glasses. <laughs> I, I'm old and I, and I cannot see, so... Here, let me see what I got here. So, you know, actually, I, my question I have is not on this thing. Well, I cannot talk with you and not feel that there's an underswell of some sort of really important why. Mm. So is that true? And if it is, where does that come from? Because the stuff that you do requires <clears throat> massive amounts of energy and resilience. Mm. A lot of it does come back to, I don't think I even knew this was the case or could articulate it before I came across that story about my great-grandfather. 
but I do feel a deep love and gratitude and sense of debt to Hawaii and to Hawaiian culture. And when I say Hawaiian culture, I don't mean, Pono used to say this too, right? He used to say, we are not our culture, right? And I think what he meant by that was, I don't mean particular practices, cultural practices, but there is a deep ethic. And I believe that it comes actually, it's grounded in the islands themselves, you know, but there is that deep ethic of aloha. And I don't think I would be here today if not for that, because my great grandfather wouldn't have made it here. And I, again, it's not even a conscious thing, but I feel a deep connection to that and a deep desire to honor it and to make sure that it it lives on in some form. That's my deepest motivation. And so whether it's, you know, homelessness, I got interested in that, I think, because that was a space where I could see both, oh, it's being practiced actually on the street in some places and with some communities. And in that division between people who are houseless and people who have houses and those points where the anger is boiling over and we're starting to sweep people around like rubbish, I could also see the loss of aloha. So that's what kind of drew me to work on that issue. But even with Kanu and Envision, you know, I think that's where the motivation came from and maybe the tendency to try to build community and movement versus lead in a different way, you know, to have the best idea or the biggest idea or the loudest voice, you know. So would you say that underneath that as the fuel for that motivation and the why, what would be the primary emotion driving it? Oh, it's love. Yeah. And you had that love from young? You were able to move to that that early? That I'm not sure. I don't think so. You know, when did it move? Because what I'm saying, when did it move, is mm. normally that kind of energy mm. is in to really move something through. A lot of times is built on fear. Mm. I gotta move away. I gotta get away from this. I gotta accomplish mm-hmm. it. And then at some point, hopefully, we move it into love. Mm. Right. So you moving instead of going away from, it's like toward moving toward. So it moves from like fear based, oh, and it moves yeah. much more toward purpose. Mm-hmm. It becomes a calling and a pulling versus a pushing, like a mm-hmm. pushing. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There's a point where a lot of, like, our age are trying to navigate. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, like, you said love. That was interesting to me. And when was that? I think it was as a youngish adult when I moved back home after school and after working on the continent for a little while and really for the first time getting connected to community in a in a deeper way. So is there a story a around way. that? Like can you pinpoint it on something? That one is hard for me. I mean, you know, when it's crystal clear is later on when I'm kind of looking at it through the lens of my great grandfather's experience then. But it was a bunch of little experiences and people I met along the way, you know? Like I don't know about you, but for me growing up, I was in a bubble. I mean, you know, I'm still su- in a bubble. suburb in Honolulu. You know, school, punahou, swimming, that was my life, and didn't have much connection to community. It wasn't until going away and then coming back and having this opportunity to work with these real grassroots organizations in, you know, in places like Hana and Moloka'i 
and, you know, the back of Kalihi Valley that I felt like I really started to understand, oh, this is what's different about Hawaii. This is what's special. Those were the moments where I got pulled back to kind of gratitude and love. But I don't, I don't think I can pinpoint like a specific moment or story. Yeah. These days when you get kind of feeling like you're burnt out, what, what are you doing for your own self-care or grounding? I got a lot of work to do in that area. The grounding, what helps me stay grounded is trying to stay connected with those folks on the street. And so, you know, Twinkle is one of my dearest friends and I don't get to see her as much as I used to. I'd I'd be out there at the village, you know, at least twice a week up until I took this job. I've only seen her a handful of times since I started the work, but she's one that just an incredible human being and someone that is just solid in her aloha. And that helps me. The woman I hired into my office, the first person I hired into my office was a woman named Lindsay Pacheco, who I met when she was living in a tent in Kakako. She's been housed for the last couple of years. She's now working toward her master's in social work. And she's one too, you know, crystal clear on why she's there, why she's in the office, and always has that connection back to, you know, we're here for those people that cannot be here right now, whose voice is not only not in this circle, but they're not heard in any circle, you know. Those kind of relationships keep me grounded and keep me motivated. I will say too that like, you know, going back to something we were talking about earlier where there is around homelessness, especially a lot of dialed up defensiveness, fear, hostility, right? And I'm not blaming anyone for feeling that way. As you said, people have had traumatic experiences sometimes or it's it's their own stuff and that they're afraid of that's that can be part of it too you know but the way to counter that the way to build movement a counter movement to that is to find these people who have deep heart deep aloha and to hui them up you know and so in that sense that is still a movement building part it's harder as we were saying earlier and the pace and the rhythm of it is different. Like one thing I said to the governor was, you know, fear and anger spreads like a virus. But this aloha, this deep ethic of caring and connection does spread more like a vaccine, which means you've got to like build it over time. Like you actually have to find someone with immunity or build an immunity in someone and then like hui them up, you know. And so it's methodical. It requires that it builds like a snowball, you know, versus like spreading like a fire. It builds at the speed of trust. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is there anything today that we didn't maybe cover or you want, you feel like you would like to share? Well, I guess the other thing I would say is this is what made me hopeful when I was doing street outreach on a regular basis and building community folks on the street. And it's what keeps me hopeful now is that there there are so many people out there who are unhoused right now who have gifts to offer and energy to bring to the table and initiative and ideas who are going to help us solve this problem and whose efforts are actually key to helping us solve this problem. Like whether you're talking on a micro scale with one individual or a macro scale as an entire community, right? We cannot solve homelessness, even one person's homelessness, without their own initiative and energy at the table, right? We're not going to do it for them or in spite of them. 
they have to be invested in it too. And the good news is there's lots of folks out there, like I said, who have gifts and ideas and initiative that they want to bring to the table, you know? And I've seen it happen. That's what happened at Puhonua, right? I mean, after the eviction was called off, at that time, Governor Ige said, okay, I'll give you guys time to plan your own transition, but you got to move off this state land. So we started to look for land. We started to fundraise. The village started to fundraise. And fast forward, you know, two years later, and they bought 20 acres of property. And now they're building their forever home there. And they're doing it. You know, I mean, I helped. A bunch of housed allies helped. But if not for the village and its own initiative and its story and its work in the community, it wouldn't have happened, you know. And it's replicable. Like, I saw it happening in Kakako. You know, their community was coming together. Unfortunately, they got swept before they had a chance to really make it happen. But it's possible, and not only is it possible, but like I said, the energy is there. It's just that our systems right now are not set up to tap that energy or move with it or cultivate it, you know. So that makes me hopeful, and that's where the whole idea behind Kauhale comes from, village-style housing, something we're really pushing. And when I say we, I don't just mean the governor and the administration. I mean, like, we're trying to find those community partners to team up with to make a village happen, you know. And it doesn't have to be tiny home villages. It can be in a building. It could be in an apartment building or or repurposed dormitory or a vacant office space, you know. But to bring people together to function as a village is the goal. And that can be essential to people, like we've been talking about, people's healing and growth, you know. So I'm excited about that. I'm hopeful about that. And again, the thing that motivates me is knowing that there's folks out there who are unhoused who want to be and can be part of the solution if we invite them in the right way, if we create those opportunities for Kuliana to wake up their mana and for their mana to wake up our mana, you know, that part can be viral. Okay, cool. Yeah. I think this is a good place for us to end and right. thank you for your time. Thank you, man. It's great to see you. Yeah, you too. Yeah. If you resonate with Greater Good Radio, please join our community at www.greatergoodradio.com, where you can get access to exclusive content and offerings. Hope to see you soon.